0: It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald.
1: Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching. If you know of an interesting preacher that it would be good for me to speak with that you'd like to hear interviewed, please email me at preachers at ChristianCentury.org. Many of our guests come to us via listener suggestions, and we need some more. So please do send some names in. This week we speak with David Bartlett. David is a longtime seminary educator and local church pastor. He's served churches in the South and in the Northeast, as well as other places, and taught New Testament studies and homiletics at Yale Divinity School, Columbia Theological Seminary, University of Chicago and other schools across the country. David is the person who taught me that when reading the Bible, it's best to place yourself not in the hero's shoes, but instead in the shoes of the sinner in the story. I remember the first time he suggested that to me, it just cracked open scripture for me. He has a way of doing that and a way of bridging the divide between the church and the academy that people on both sides of that divide often feel and suffer. So I'm excited to present this conversation with David Bartlett. Here he is. David, one of the stereotypes of, of uh, church life and, and life in seminaries and divinity schools is this distinction that people, at least on the church side of it, see sometimes between what's happening in the life of a local church and what's going on in the ivory tower. And one of the things I've noticed about your career is that you have bridged that gap. Has that been intentional on your part? You've you've been uh, an academic, and you've done that work beautifully, but you've maintained a foot in the church in one way or another um, all through your career is what it looks like to me.
0: I started out thinking that that was exactly what I wanted to do, and then, like so many people in graduate school, assumed I'd just head off and be a teacher for the rest of my life, and God or good luck or something called me to attention because in my first teaching job, the school ran out of money, and I was the last hired, and before I became the first fired, I went looking for a job. A church was available. I went to it. I loved it, and after that, it really was a major attempt to try to keep the two things balanced. So
1: that's interesting. So your your call to parish ministry was a was a call of necessity at some level.
0: At the end, yes. My youthful call was, I thought this was my vocation. I got to Yale, discovered I loved New Testament studies, thought maybe I'd just do that for the rest of my life, and then by sheer necessity ended up in a congregation that I dearly loved.
1: When you had that experience of being in that local church, did it feel like what was happening there was um, wholly separate from your studies and what you were discovering through New Testament studies, or, or did they go hand in glove?
0: It was somewhere in the middle. It was certainly not as technically interested uh, as so many of my classes had been. Lots of questions that I thought were of, Earth-shaking importance turned out not to be very important, but the Bible still counted. I think, in some ways, I've I've been a pastor on the for the most part of more liberal Protestant churches, and I've I've had the opposite job of many people. So many of my friends have had the job of trying to take theologically conservative people and kind of shake up their views of the Bible. My job's been to take theologically liberal people and kind of revitalize the Bible to say that we can we can take this as a major resource for our faith. That hasn't been a given in many of the congregations where I've served.
1: How has that affected your studies and your, your work as an academic in terms of how you approach the text, not pastorally, but I don't know what the right word is, professionally, academically?
0: I, I suppose I think... I th- I have to be committed to the claim that this has some value besides historical value. I've got dear friends and superb scholars who are who are New Testament scholars because they think the stuff is deeply interesting historically, and it is. I love all that stuff. But when I'm studying and teaching now and when I'm getting ready to preach, I have to say, all right, how, how do I find in this text a word that will actually convict people to a deeper sense of who they are and who God is? Because if that's not the case, then the then the text, they're right about this, the text is just kind of a relic of an old-fashioned time, and we need to move on to some kind of post-Christian religiosity. Do you feel that Which pull in liberal Protestant churches to,
1: to want to go to that place?
0: I feel in liberal Protestant churches the sense that we got there already, and we might as well face it. Um, yes, so that's a little different. It's not, people aren't necessarily thrilled by this, but I think they... In, in several of the churches where I've served, large number, every church is is highly diverse. And there, any, any kind of mainline Protestant thing from from orthodoxy to Unitarianism has been present in any congregation where I've served. But I think the sense that, that the Bible is a nostalgically valuable part of our past as opposed to a vital resource for our present and source for our future is alive and well in lots of Protestant churches where I've served and preached.
1: Is alive and well.
0: Is alive and well. There's a lot of sense that that was our parents' book or our grandparents' book.
1: It's interesting. The You know, in, in, in the UCC where I serve, we have this slogan that we just love, God is still speaking. Yes. And at one level, you can read that as a very sort of Bartian statement. God yeah. is indeed still yeah. speaking through Scripture. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's not how... Most people tend to assume it's intended, um, and I think it's kind of left purposefully vague. Do you, as a as a historian and as a New Testament scholar, um, when you approach the text, there's there's this back to Bart again. There's this understanding he has right that the first task of theology is to serve the church. Right. Do you think you can say the same thing about biblical studies?
0: I think the first task of my biblical studies has been to serve the church. I think I think that there's a whole guild of really important, wonderful people who are not primarily there to serve the church, but who are there historians of a particular era, as a, as a classicist might be an historian of Virgil, which is a perfectly wonderful thing to do. It's just not been my vocation.
1: And just as a classicist isn't going to turn around and say, here is a word of God for you people in New Canaan right now from Virgil, Uh, these New Testament scholars aren't going to say the same thing about Galatians.
0: All true. Now, they may very well go off and think that on Sunday morning, or they may teach a Bible study class which says that on Sunday morning, but in terms of what they write and the way they see their weekday life, that's not an essential part of of the job.
1: So in the guild of, of New Testament scholars are is that division is that a division is it one that's articulated do people associate with different camps
0: It is underneath the surface a lot of the time. I think interestingly I've been at this for a long time now. I don't find it argued about the way I did in the 60s and 70s. I think people kind of pay their money and take their choice. The the postmodern thing about which I understand very little. Uh, nonetheless said that it's possible to be a kind of a Christian New Testament scholar, and that's okay. It's possible to be a secular New Testament scholar. That's okay. We don't have to convert other people to our paradigm. And I think in a certain way, that's been freeing. Paragraph one can be, I need to tell you that I'm speaking as someone within the Christian faith, two Christian people. I also have some historical insights, and then nobody can say, by God, look at that. You're arguing like a Christian. I said, yes, I told you that in paragraph one.
1: (laughs) How long ago did you start teaching? When was your First I department. started teaching
0: in 1970, so uh, full time. I taught. I did a lot of TAing when I was at Yale, but I did full time teaching in 1970.
1: How have you seen from what you're doing now at Yale, and and way back in 1970 or even prior, how have the students changed?
0: Well, in in 19 in my student days, which was the which was the second half of the 60s, we were white male mainline Protestant, fresh out of college for the most part, and now we are all sorts and conditions of humankind at Yale, but different, different ages, different races, uh, different genders, which is extremely important. There were about eight or ten women who were in my class at most, and most of them were planning to be Christian educators, and those who were on their way to being either professors or pastors were overwhelmingly male. And I think the school is almost immeasurably richer and more interesting now than it was when I was a student, though lots of my best friends were my classmates and still are.
1: Do you think that the assumptions that students bring in about what the church is and what it ought to be doing have changed?
0: Yes. We, we, were, we were the last end of, of establishmentism. We came from flourishing churches, and uh, we'd grown up in churches that were, that were still part of the kind of Eisenhower era sense that we are a Protestant nation, though many are welcome that, that what we're trying to do is to live out the Protestant ideals. Reinhold Niebuhr was everybody's hero. And in an interesting way, Martin Luther King just confirmed that. He was, he, people, I think, underestimate the extent to which, for those of us who were churchy, his churchiness counted. That when you wanted to take on a revolution, you took it on from within the family of faith, not outside it. So we thought we were pretty important and that the world was paying a considerable amount of attention. And I don't see that confidence very much anymore.
1: It would almost be like today, if I imagine students studying dentistry a thing on their mind in dental school is not going to be whether or not the world needs dentists or dentistry yeah. is going to exist in 20 years. Yeah. yeah How that's... has that affected the, the, the disestablishment of the church? How has that affected the questions that students are bringing the morale that they bring is, do you feel that different in the classroom these days?
0: I feel a different, and I need to say here that, that my teaching in the, in the last decade has been much more at Columbia Seminary than at Yale. So I'm back at Yale now and, and doing a little bit of teaching, but I don't begin to have the day-to-day relationships with present MDiv students that I did at Columbia. There's, the, there's just vocational anxiety. There's employment anxiety. And that's, I don't think any of us were particularly worried that we would find a church. It might not be the church of our dreams the first time around, but there would be a church and then we could just keep going as our foreparents parents in the faith had done. Right now, some of our best students graduate without any clear certainty that there's going to be a full-time parish for them to serve. And I think that, that brings a great deal of anxiety into the whole thing. doesn't mean that they're less committed to Jesus, and that may mean not mean that they're less committed to the church. They're just less confident that that will take care of their financial needs for the rest of their lives.
1: It's interesting. I mean, it's not the first time this has been thought or said, but there is a way in which where we are right now, I think, is probably closer to what it would have been like to be a Christian in the time that the New Testament was written sure it than sure it was 50 yeah. years ago.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's exactly right. And and I, I, I think sometimes it's very good for us to, to get a sense of what it is to be more marginalized, more sectarian, less the mainstream. But I don't want to romanticize that either. I'm, I'm not sure that we should be delighted by the fact that nobody pays attention any longer.
1: I, absolutely. One of the things I've seen, I mean, I feel like I sort of leapt on to the Last go around of the merry go round in my um, in my own career as a pastor, I was able to you know jump on to a, a established mainline parish that was definitely in a terrible decline. But I was you know I've been able to stay in full time yeah. parish ministry for the past sixteen years. And the younger pastors that I know here in Chicago, they they have an entrepreneurial sensibility that my peers don't have for the most yep. part. Um, yep. And there's something beautiful about that.
0: There's something beautiful about that. And a little scary. I mean, there's, there's something brave about that too, in a way that I never had to be brave. I, I I, might not have gotten the church. but I had wonderful churches, but there was never any guarantee that would be the case. I never actually thought I'd have a time. I'd have to sell insurance or be a uh, psychologist or something to make them, to make them enough money to get by.
1: Do you think that, your decision did it feel like a decision that you made like all right i'm going to be a professor and serve the church at the same time or did that feel like something that that you had to do like a compulsion yeah, or an imperative
0: that that was just me i've I, this sounds self-serving but i would have been a dentist and served the church the, the church thing was prior to the professor thing.
1: Did that come out of your childhood experience of church it going? Did.
0: It did, very much so, yes. Uh, what... My dad was a pastor and a very good pastor. He and I were are very much alike and very different, as all fathers and sons. But there's no question that growing up uh, under his influence and my mother's influence, and the influence of a lot of, uh, we were, I was in a big church growing up, so there was a large ministerial staff. He wasn't my only model or my only mentor. So I had a lot of really good examples of how to be a pastor with integrity and faithfulness and it stuck
1: I think one of the things that being a I'm a PK also and one of the experiences that we can have is you sort of see an a very unvarnished honest yeah, yeah. you know i mean ministers like like everybody else can go around i do this on a sunday morning and prevent, present a persona the false self that we use to get through the day yeah. um which as a result then being a pastor or a preacher i think to children in the church can sometimes look um especially in larger churches can look a little unreal yeah. um i mean kids can can see that adult in authenticity pretty clearly um if you're growing up in the home of a minister you're going to see it for what it really is um for the good and the bad
0: yeah and 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 the and the integrity that's in it and the the real struggles that that are behind it A vivid memory of my youth was when my father was engaged in a major tussle with one of the leaders of our church around, I think, really important theological and social issues. And I said to the youth minister, who was one of my mentors, that uh, I was amazed that I would hear my father sitting around the dinner table saying, if I have to talk to that man one more time, I'm simply going to scream, the phone rings, it's that man. And my father says, well, hello, Joe, what can I do for you? And, and my friend, the youth minister, said, that's not cowardice, that's integrity. Mm. And I thought, that's smart, right? I, I would have yelled at it, but that wasn't necessarily the braver thing to do. It may have just been the more self-indulgent thing to do. And there's a way in which the persona can be a way of trying to stay Christian, even when your gut is saying, oh, just spit at the guy and move on.
1: That's a really interesting thought that, I mean, I often remind myself in my own frustration with parishioners I have promised to love these people,
0: yeah, that's right
1: and and oftentimes with to keep fidelity to those kind of promises, it is a sort of fake it till you make it kind of thing
0: it is kind of fake it till you make it and and you you know this as well as I do when you when you do their funerals, you discover you loved them more than you thought you did when i one of the more interesting experiences I had was when I left the last church I served, which was in Oakland. And full of wonderful people, nobody who drove me nuts, but certainly some who were more annoying than others. And I had done pretty well about saying goodbye to all the people who I thought were my best friends. And I went to the store to do an errand and ran into the guy who I thought had been the biggest pain in the butt for the last seven years. And when I said goodbye to him, I started crying because I couldn't figure out what I was going to do without him. And I partly figure out who I am in relationship to this. Um, Love is not always liking. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, what what does Harawas say? Uh, uh, in church, we learn how to love people that we wouldn't normally like.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's like seminary, uh, incidentally.
1: <laughs> Maybe even family sometimes Maybe, too. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, you and Barbara Brown Taylor undertook this massive effort, right? This huge task to produce Feasting on the Word. Yeah. Um What did you feel was lacking in? I mean, the world does not seem to lack for commentaries right um, yes. what did you what need did you feel you guys were meeting when you undertook this like what wasn't there that needed to be there yeah
0: I assume you want me to be totally candid about this it was the press's idea
1: oh interesting
0: Barbara and I did not go out to lunch one day and come up with this thing uh, Westminster John Knox came up with it and then they came to us and we then went out to lunch and decided we would do it um, I think I think and I, I also have to say, my wife simply took me to a bookstore and pointed out the number of things that were on the lectionary already and said, you guys are nuts. This is the last thing the world needs one more of. Um, surely you can find some better way to spend your time. Wasn't she? wasn't affectionate. She just thought this was not going to go anywhere. And it's been astonishing in the little world in which we live, the number of volumes it's sold and the offspring it's had and the way it appears in chat rooms and everything. I think, it. I think, I hope, that it does two things, which are very important. It hangs on to the Bible. What I said earlier in our conversation, that that the mainline needs, wants, and at some in some points, uh, is actually willing to to reclaim the Bible as part of its source. But it also doesn't just repeat the kind of standard commentary. In verse three, we see that the Greek shifts from verse two, and uh, it it tries to to take the Bible as a living document in a number of conversations. And I think it gives different pastors a different way to to get into it and find a way to, to bring the conversation to their own lives and to the lives of their people. It's been an astonishing – in in our little world, this is not – we are never going to be Stephen King, but in our little world, it's been amazingly uh, widespread and successful.
1: One of the things that I love about it is the breakdown of perspectives that you offer yeah. for each pericope. And, um, it's you know, I wrote a couple of them, right? And, um when I sat down to write it, I didn't really think too much about, all right, I'm writing from this particular, you know, I've been assigned to write from the homiletical perspective. So there's four perspectives in the book for those who haven't seen these. um, The theological perspective, a pastoral perspective, an exegetical perspective, and a homiletical perspective. Um, So anyhow, when I was writing the homiletical perspective on just, you (laughs) know— I don't mean to make more of this than it actually was, two or three of, of 50,000. Um, <laughs> no, it's more like 5,000. <laughs> but I uh, I just wrote, you know, here's basically, here's here's what I hear happening in this passage. Yeah, yeah, um, great, yeah. And when I've sat down to use the resource in my own sermon preparation, I think it's really cool how you get a conversation going between four people who don't all read the passage the same way, that's aren't, right. aren't coming, aren't assigned the same perspective, but just aren't, don't have the same perspective to begin with. Oh,
0: it's, sometimes it's lovely. There's, there's one in there where our dear friend, Peter Hawkins, who taught at Yale, still teaches at Yale, says something about how appalling this passage is. He doesn't know anybody can preach on it. And then three other people say how much they love this text and why they can't wait to preach on it. And it's a wonderful conversation.
1: Yeah. And it's, I think oftentimes in church life, we can get um, very isolated, of course. Ministry is an infamously isolated yeah, profession. Yeah. Um, for folks who are serving as soul pastors, that's even more true. And even when we try to break out of our isolation, we can tend to break out of it into conversation with like-minded people, denominationally related people. So I think one of the great things about Feasting on the Word is the way in which it captures and creates a conversation um, amongst a truly diverse group of Christians. And that doesn't happen nearly enough in real life. It doesn't so, happen nearly enough in real life. Yeah, yeah, so for it to happen in the pages of, of of a book is, and to be sort of fixed is great.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's been a gift to all of us, I think.
1: I don't know if you said this, David, or if this is someone, this is someone paraphrasing you, um, but this is what I have in my head as something that you said, so you tell me if I'm I'll, right or I'll, not. If it's good, I'll claim it. <laughs> uh, it was that a sermon is written from a particular perspective at a particular moment to a particular group of people in order to hopefully speak to a particular need or issue.
0: Yeah, I've certainly said versions of that.
1: Therefore, sermons have no shelf life.
0: Yeah. Can you expound on that a little bit? I'm about to publish mine, and my wife uh, brings this up on a regular basis. She reminds me of my own claim that this is just the wrong thing to do. Uh, Sermons, sermon, I... I don't write the sermon the same way I write a book. When I write a book, I say, okay, I want this to last for four or five years at least, and I want to have a fairly broad audience. When I write a sermon, I I seriously do think about what do I say to these people over this week with this text in mind and with my love and need, my love for them and my sense of their needs. And that's very important. And if, if it never gets written, published, or anything else, and something happens on that Sunday and in the week that follows, that's been a great Sunday. And I believe that with all my heart. Having said that, said he, simply to justify his own life. Uh, Westminster John Knox, partly because feasting on the word went so well, has asked me to give them a bunch of sermons, so I'm in the midst of doing that. And I don't want to look like a total hypocrite when I start burbing my own book in a couple of years. But um, having said that, I do think sometimes uh, it's helpful not only for preachers, very much for preachers, but also for other people, to be able to read a sermon. But interestingly, the best sermons are not the sermons for all ages. That, that that it helps to know what the context is. And what I often admire in a sermon is I can see how specific it was, not how general it was. So I hope that's not totally taking back what I think is exactly right, which is that preaching ought to be occasional, to say that sometimes we can overhear those occasions and find them helpful. That's great. And
1: I think in my own sort of like recycling over the years, one of the things I've found is I can find Things that I've said more doctrinally than anecdotally, most of the yeah. time, that do seem like you know I said this as well as I can say it, and, yeah, no, and,
0: exactly.
1: and I'll say it again. But yeah. the need to say it, the the way it's couched, the way it's you know stressed or not stressed, um, the the reason to say it changes over time.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: absolutely. I just think sometimes about looking back at old sermons. Um, there's this line from a songwriter I like named David Berman, and he says. To a certain degree, he's talking about looking back at his own songs. To a certain degree, I have aversions to everything I've created. And I've thought before looking at old sermons, I've felt that. like This might have felt good at the time, but it's not yeah. only because yeah. time has passed. It's something, yeah. you know what I mean? We can be blind, no, I, don't I think.
0: think what you mean. When you get as old as I am, you think of that as, as being forgiving of her younger self. And there's something to that. I mean, I remember that guy, and I know why he did that. I'd never do that again, but I know why that made sense to him on that Sunday. Some of them will never make sense. I mean, I just did some truly stupid things. But once in a while, I can see how it was a product of a 34-year-old in a very different world.
1: So that it's not necessarily wrong. It's
0: just well, I say, yeah, yeah, I don't necessarily get embarrassed about it. Right? Yeah. If I written it yesterday, it would be embarrassing for that kid to have written it back then for those people kind of understandable
1: i remember years ago hearing you say that you know the right way i may have overstated this in my own mind but but the right way to read the gospels is is different from the way in which we read you know a spy novel or tolkien or any kind of adventure story in which we place ourselves in the um character of the protagonist right Right. and we identify with him but but i remember you saying reading reading the gospels you know Put yourself in the character of, of the one who is screwing up in this story. Yeah, be
0: somebody else, right. Don't do yeah. Jesus and I have agreed on the following, and we'd like to point this out to you. It's a <laughs> tricky place for a pastor to stand.
1: That is a very different sort of reading, though. You know, I mean, I think from an early age, we're taught to read um, as identifiers with the
0: heroic. Yeah, yes, we are. Yes, we are. I think that's fair. That's lovely. Uh, I'll I'll use that the next time I lecture. I think maybe as Christians were to identify with the anti-heroic.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's um, which causes you to have to really shift gears, and it's an easy thing to fall back into. It's an easy
0: thing to fall back into, and and without getting too pointed, if we look at the present political campaign, we can see how absurd it becomes when it becomes a kind of fundamental strategy for attending to the world.
1: Yeah, do you mean from a heroic perspective? Yeah,
0: that I'm I am the hero and now as a hero I'm going to lead you on.
1: Yeah, doesn't work. I have to say one of the things I'm finding refreshing about this political cycle is the way in which it seems to have I mean history could mock me for saying this that's for sure, but that notion of like we're going to reward whoever the best fake Christian is. Yeah. That seems to have washed that out.
0: Seems to have gone. That's a nice point. I think you're right.
1: I mean, hope, hopefully, yeah, that yeah. doesn't mean we're going to reward who the most evil person is. But that hypocrisy is gone yeah, at least.
0: Yeah, certainly at the at the at the center of the story on the Republican side, that one's gone to hell. I just, I'm just going to be as blatantly not that way as I possibly can. Though I do like those little cups of juice and those little crackers we eat once in a while.
1: <laughs> Isn't it wild that the, uh, the number one um, slice of the population that supports Donald Trump are lapsed evangelicals?
0: Yeah, no, I would just, somebody's got to figure that out for me. I haven't got it, but.
1: And I think from the mainline perspective, we can assume to be an evangelical means to be a better Christian than I am. Therefore, you're going to church. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and yeah. it's, so, so even yeah. the notion of a lapsed evangelical yeah. was sort it's, of.
0: It's very tricky. Right, right, yeah. right, right. So I've the, had, I have had churches full of lapsed evangelicals, especially in the South. The mainline churches tend to be full of people whose growing up was a lot more conservative than their adulthood has been. Interesting. And, How did those they're, folks. They're not left by being less churchy, but they're certainly very differently churchy than their parents were.
1: How, like, the difference between serving a church, a congregational church in Connecticut, as opposed to serving a church of of, um, refugees from evangelicalism in the South, like, does
0: that feel like? Well, no, it is. It's actually, that's that's a nice point which I hadn't thought of myself. But in in both cases, you've got a certain kind of distancing from from a, a, anything that looks to them like undue piety for the Bible. But in in the in Connecticut, that's just drifted away. There's no nobody ever got up one day and said, "I've got to get away from this." It just becomes, for our culture, sadly, I think, increasingly less pertinent. In the South, there's that deliberate moment where you say, "Okay, this is how the Bible has been preached." all these years and I can't do that any longer, so where can I stand? So
1: there's an act of renunciation. It's
0: an act of renunciation. And, and of courage at some points. And and I people would ju- in in Connecticut when I kind of bring back the Bible, they think I'm quaint in the South they sometimes think I'm dangerous because it brings back an awful lot of stuff they've learned to hate.
1: Pat did, do you approach the text or the sermon, the pulpit differently? I mean you're a pastorally sensitive person. Does that steer you?
0: It does, sure it does, almost unconsciously, though. In every church where I've been, some preaching is about how do we read the Bible. And and pastors out there, I want us not to underestimate the value of, of Bible study. A lot of the best pastoral and theological work I've done is in conversation, not from the pulpit. And I, I commend that to you in preparing your sermons and in preparing your people, preparing your soul. That can be a scary thing,
1: Um Or a time-consuming thing. It's funny. I Just this past week, one of our pastors who teaches a a Christianity 101 for young adults here at St. Paul's, he was sick, so I substituted for him. I'd never done the class before. And I brought the passage where I'm going to preach on the Ascension this coming Sunday. And I had in my head my sermon outlined, basically. And I brought it to the group and shared with them, you know, here's what we find here. And that's not what they found.
0: Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. For years, I had a deal that, that didn't come from me. It came from Bill Weber at East Harlem Protestant Parish, which was to have the have a sermon preparation seminar. So Thursday nights, 10 days before the sermon, we'd all get together and talk about the text. And the deal was that if I had the sermon outline ready, we'd do something else that week. It They had to be part of the conversation. I didn't mm. have to take their thing, but I couldn't just take listen to them and then do what I was going to do if I hadn't been there. Um so that so that it, it became, that became, that was a great part of, of my preaching. Uh, certainly a great part of their listening, I think. They listened a lot better when they've been part of the conversation of how we got to the sermon.
1: If they had the chance to have, right. And I, I would assume by listening carefully to people's questions, I mean, I find this in my church, that's for sure. When I'm paying attention to what people's concerns and needs are, preaching becomes more of a pastoral
0: act. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Do you
1: think... I mean, I, I believe God is speaking to us through Scripture, but that God is free to speak to us otherwise, too. Absolutely. And do you feel ever, as a as a New Testament scholar, that for a person's religious life, that it can be limiting in a way, that Protestantism, because it is such a text-based faith, um, that somehow we lose things or miss things that we might, if we were... I don't know, more open to experience somehow.
0: I think it's a tricky balance, and I th- I think there's not it's not a one way balance either. I, I I think for all of us there's some kind of combination of scripture and experience, and that that we can be enriched by, by looking at the part of our lives that needs enrichment. In the churches where I've been, and I, this is just this is just totally confessional, autobiographical, uh, the religious experience stuff's been pretty good, and the Bible's been pretty thin and i i want to say those aren't mutually contradictory bring your experience and see your experience in light of the bible but i'm after 52 years or whatever i've been doing this thing i actually haven't begun to get exhausted with the text
1: with the text well it you know it's funny i've my own approach to all of this has been thanks to you and others heavily determined by by karl bart and yeah absolutely who you know obviously is sort of always encouraging us to to not place a lot of trust in our experience, right. um, or at least to not conflate it with God, yeah, and that's something yeah. that i've I've talked a lot about in the pulpit in my various churches, and and do here at St. Paul's, and and you know, kind of insist that you can have these amazing moments, and they can be amazing, um, they can be beautiful, they can be a gift, but that doesn't necessarily make them. Divine. Right. Um, and it's something I sort of insist upon. And then I was on vacation with my family up in northern Michigan a few weeks ago, and we're on a walk through this trail in the woods that we'd never found before. So it felt new and exciting, but in a larger context of a place we know and love. And it's like that Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, you know, this God dappled day, the sun is yeah, coming down. Good. Yes, yes, yes. And I felt religious ecstasy. Sure. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, what kind of hypocrite are you? This is precisely the experience you're always telling people to be cautious about divinizing. Yeah. But I couldn't deny my own feelings. It's... No,
0: nor, nor should you. Right? Absolutely. One of the one of the nice things about working of Barbara Brown Taylor is she's much more apt to be out there being dabbled, and I'm much more likely to be working with the Greek text. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it was it's been kind of fun to play off against each other as we think about other people's writings and how you hold those things together. But no, you can't. You don't want to demonize it, but you don't want to trash it either. I mean, that's it's very real for a lot of people, and and there, are, I don't know that I've had anything as transcendent as your experience, but absolutely, there've been moments where I have felt that I was very close to something that was very holy, and I wasn't reading the Bible at the time. Yeah,
1: I sometimes think that Bart, that voice needed that needed to be said. Maybe it always needs to be said. Perhaps it needed to be said with that particular emphasis and sharpness in Switzerland and Germany well, in the I 1930s. So,
0: that, that, like all of us, he's a product of his time. And, and it did have to be said with a particular sharpness. And I think there are things to be said over against that with some sharpness, which is get out there and look at the world and notice people's needs and notice the be- The world is still charged with the grandeur of God. Karl Barth, to the contrary, notwithstanding. At some level, he probably knew that. He probably actually liked those mountains, just wasn't going to preach about them.
1: <laughs> I love that. When you were teaching preaching, um, and I know that that wasn't your primary thing, but as a teacher of preaching, when you're running into students who seem to have a natural gift for the task and students who are not naturally equipped for the pulpit, um, what do you do as a teacher in that?
0: I've tried to keep a balance in teaching preaching and to recognize the gifts that people bring, but also to recognize we all have something to learn from other ways of doing it so that you don't simply find your kind of... uh, whatever your style is going to be when you're 24 years old and then just do it that way forever. Listen to other preachers, look at other possibilities, read other books, somehow be, be, and, and change. Don't, don't be that. I, nobody should be the same preacher at 75 that they were at
1: 25. Mm. How do you feel you've changed as a preacher over those 50 years?
0: I try to say less. That's that lots of my colleagues, lots of my peers will say the same thing. My early sermons were just, chock full of too much, I think, pretty good stuff. It wasn't that it was trivial. It was just too much. It was more than people could hear and more than you could expect them to to uh, to take away. So I, f- I focus more, I narrow more, I preach shorter. Uh, I think a lot longer before I write anything down. I don't start with a long sermon, then cut it. I start with a lot of thoughts and then write a fairly short sermon when I'm done. Uh, I've moved away from having sermons that were stories. I did a lot of that. In my in my youthful preaching, and it was pretty effective, and I've done very little of it since I got to be fifty-five or so, and I'm not quite sure why. Do you, you mean I, sermons that have anecdotes in them, no, or sermons no, I, that... that I still do? Anecdotes? No, I'm telling the story of the of the paralytic healed by Jesus from the paralytic's point of view. Oh, that kind of narrative. I, I was lying on my bed. One of, one of my sermons that got published and actually had pretty wide circulation is the paralytic lying there having Jesus say, "My child." And discovering that the healing's in the word, not just in the standing up, and it's pretty, pretty good. It's a pretty good point. But I don't, for whatever reasons, I don't do that monologue kind of sermon very much anymore. Like never.
1: I definitely found in my own preaching, and I haven't been at it for as long as you have, but there are things, ways, styles, approaches that appeal to me for a while. That, for whatever reason, leave me cold. Just as there are chapters in my life where. I think Van Gogh is the greatest artist yeah, ever And chapters much. where yeah, I look at it and think, favorite, man. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and you're a different person, right? You, you, you express yourself differently. I think part of what happened is I got persuaded by members of my congregation, and about 80% of them just loved that, and about 20% of them didn't get it at all and said, stop telling me these stories and just tell me what you believe. And I've tried to find some kind of balance, not just over the course of a year, but in every sermon find some place where I say, look, Dear ones, here's what I really believe. Mm. Touching as this story was, if you didn't get that little allusion in verse six, here's what I mean. And I've, <laughs> it, it gets a little prosaic, but it's probably more helpful to a lot of people. To
1: be just more plain and transparent. Yeah, just be more
0: plain, exactly.
1: Yeah. Do you think over the course of your career as a preacher have, I mean, there's a lot of books being written right now about, you know, we're in an age of inattention.
0: And, yeah.
1: Um, and therefore preaching ought to tack toward or to d- a diminished
0: attention span. Have you noticed that over the years I preach shorter than I used to but I think it's I think that's partly I think I would have done that in 1854 too so I'm not sure this of course there's something to it because we all do sound bites and all that kind of stuff I don't do it very much but I do enough to get some sense of it but I think from the beginning until now we shouldn't overestimate how long people can listen to a kind of disquisition it's not just how long it's how abstractly you talk That makes it hard. But I preach shorter than I used to. I think that's true. But if I got down to five minutes, I'd be really nervous. And uh, I don't use puppets, and I don't use pictures, and I think I still trust in the voice and the ear to have important things happen.
1: You know, one of the things I think is interesting about this moment that we're in as preachers is the fact that people, and for a long time this has been true, but there is something very novel about sitting before someone who 's speaking and there not works. doing anything else, there ostensibly works. at least there um, I mean movie theater chains now are are creating showings where people can look at their phones during the movie. I certainly see this with my kids and uh, myself no. at home. We watch uh, you know turn the television on and i 'm reading the newspaper half the uh, time no. and so to to as a church goer, I find this myself when i 'm not preaching to sit and just, okay, I'm going to give you my full attention yeah. or try to for the next yeah. 18 minutes, I don't do that anywhere else.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's lovely and, and can be moving. I, I did realize at some point that for me as, as a kid, really kid, young boy, the Sunday evening was just sit with the people I love, which is my family, turn on this little box and just listen to Jack Benny make jokes for half an hour, and that was just great. We didn't need to see Jack Benny. We didn't need to tweet Jack Benny. We didn't need to chat about Jack Benny. We just laughed, and then we turned it off and it been a good evening. And I, I think probably not many kids are socialized to think that's a splendid evening with your family anymore. That may change things some.
1: Absolutely. But I do think that that experience of, like, for those kids who are still going to church— Sitting in the pew is the only time they're having that sort of experience of right. stillness. Right, and we need to hold it.
0: And I do think another place where my preaching has changed is I try to pay much more attention to the fact that there are people out there of all ages and to be sure that I'm trying to find ways to connect with kids as well as with adults uh, in the sermon itself, not just other places in the service. Mm.
1: I'd like to circle back as we wrap up, David, to to this article. It's from the Journal for Preachers, the latest yeah. issue, the Pentecost issue from 2016. Um I just want to tell you how it moved me and how your work helped me understand something that I'd experienced differently. Um, Well, how Paul did and how the scripture did, but how you're cracking it open did. You say in this article that um, you're talking about the distinction between the the spirit and the flesh and the works of the flesh. And you try to move us off of a sort of stereotypical understanding of, you know, the flesh as being... Um, a series of sort of personal infractions or self-indulgences right, right. but instead you say that um, in Galatians flesh is what divides community and spirit is what or who brings community together right and you're again contextually and I see this as the this as the fruit of your engagement mm-hmm. with both the church and the historical side of studying the Bible but you then go on to say that that the majority of works of the flesh are marked primarily by their tendency to promote division, as Paul says, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, Um, and that in the contemporary myth of the isolated self, fornication, impurity, idolatry, drunkenness, and carousing notably do harm to the autonomous individual. But in the world of the Galatian churches and Presbyterian Catholic and Baptist churches today, These personal infractions still break trust, fracture relationship, wound the body of Christ. It's beautifully said. And the story I wanted to tell you is, in my first church, which was a small church, and I was able pastorally really to have an accurate sort of, internal barometer of how things were there because there mm-hmm. weren't that many people.
0: Right. And, My first church too, which was lovely.
1: I loved it. I miss it. Yeah. And yeah. and everything was going great at this church. It really was. Um, people got along. The church was growing. Our worship was joyful. It was really a, a at this particular juncture, at least smooth sailing. And all of a sudden I started to notice something was awry. I could just feel it. And I, And on, you know, at church council meetings, at worship, everything else, everything seemed the same, but it felt like something was off to me. Um, And then maybe, I don't know, six weeks into feeling this way, a couple in the church, and again, there weren't that many people there, a couple in the church came to me and told me that because of some infidelities, their their marriage was coming apart. Uh And they'd been worshiping and bringing that to worship all the way through this, you know, the dissolution of their marriage. And until I read that, your explication of of Galatians, I never understood the degree to which what was going on for them privately was somehow being absorbed communally, Um, and sadly not healed communally, you know? Um, But the community was suffering it.
0: I know, absolutely. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Um, and, and sometimes the healing can come too, but the, the suffering, my God, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: I do see the, the healing happen all the time, um, pastorally. That way in which the wounds and the injuries and the depression and anxiety and everything else that people suffer individually, when they bring that into healthy community... Um, those wounds get bound up, not they healed, but yeah, but they, can. But they yeah, get. No, they
0: can. No, they can. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Um.
1: Well, I appreciated that passage very much, and right. um, and I appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much, David, for being generous with your time today. Thoroughly
0: enjoyed it. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.